when you talk about sentience, where where the knowing is, the sentience, the seeing, and you know all that, it's not in these bodies. It's not in the brain. <laughs> it's the sentience is in the life force. It's it's guiding the acorn to know to put a root down if it's in the right position and the right uh, amount of moisture and temperature. I mean, my God, it's so intelligent. That's the acorn. It, it doesn't have even a neural system. It doesn't have any neurons. <laughs> and yet it, it can become an oak tree if conditions are right. And so the same thing with, with us, us uh, human beings. Welcome to the Plant Cunning Podcast, where we explore a relationship to plants, other people, and the mysteries of nature. Coming to you from the High Allegheny Plateau in central New York, we are your hosts, A.C. Staubel and Isaac Hill. Episode 34, Self-Realization with Art Tickner. Art is one of my spiritual mentors. I met him when I was 20. And he's been a big influence on me so far. In this episode, we speak about what he is at the core of his being. We talk about his path, about meditation, self-inquiry, group work, isolation retreats, even celibacy, and about his biggest influence, Richard Rose, who was a mystic, occultist, and spiritual teacher from West Virginia. I hope you enjoy the episode. It's a little different than many of our episodes, but I think that some of you might get a lot out of it. And if this conversation rings your bell, then you might be interested in the June TAT meeting, which will be online and on June 12th and 13th. You can find that at tatfoundation.org. I'll also have a link in the show notes. TAT is an organization of spiritual seekers and finders that was founded by Richard Rose and some of his students in the 70s and is still going strong. Usually the meetings are in person, but since COVID, um, they've been online and they are probably going to go back to being in person. So if you wanna get a taste for TAT, then June would be a good opportunity for you. And if you like what Art has to say, he has three books out uh, from the TAT Foundation Press, TAT Press. And uh, those are available at Amazon and so on. And as always, if you like what we're doing here at the Plant Cutting Podcast, please consider throwing us a few bucks on Patreon. Well, thank you for listening and have a uh, wonderful episode. Okay, so Art Tickner, welcome to the Plant Cutting Podcast. How are you doing today? I'm doing pretty good. So I'll do a little intro before this, uh, but I think we, we should start with the question, what do you know for sure? 
<laughs> just a nice slow ball, get you warmed up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, so, so actually, for anybody on the spiritual path, that is the question. Yeah. And so since I've wandered off the path, <laughs> I, I can tell you that what I know for sure is what I am. Okay. And, and that that's the only thing that I believe can be known for sure. Wow. That's a, it's a pretty profound statement there. I yeah. Think. Yeah. Yeah. So e either I'm not, I'm bemused or there's something, something weird. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> so what are you, Art? <laughs> well, what, what I am is uh, absolute being. That's, that's what I am at the core. So is that the same as everybody else? Yeah, I, I can't testify to that, but that's that's my my feeling, yes. Uh -huh. that, that's all that truly is. And everything else is a grand scheming. Hmm. So in, in a way, uh, I don't dispute somebody like Bernadette Roberts or I think uh, Mike Snyder, who uh, sort of thinks of this as a trinity, that, that manifestation is part of reality. To me, it's, mm, it, it's <laughs> it is part of reality, but it isn't what it seems to be. It, you know, in other words, it seems to me like if I knock my head on the door, it's going to hurt, right? Yeah. So from that standpoint, all the things here seem truly real and really convincing, <laughs> but so do they in our dream state. Yeah. Yeah. But so would you go as far to say that all that we experience uh, as objects of this objective world is an illusion or false? Well, our belief about its reality is an illusion. Well, a lot of people have said that over the, over the centuries and millennia. Sure. You know, but it's, it's, it seems so hard to uh, either believe or disbelieve. Yeah. Well, yeah, it, it's not. So the truth is not believable. Hmm. And, and basically what happens when you experience the truth of what you are, if you uh, ride the, the ray of creation back into a body mind. So it, it could be that this happens to many people when they die, when they physically die, you know, and, and, and they don't come back to testify. But uh, if, if you do, if, it, if it's not a physical death, but it's what people have referred to as an ego death that triggers it. And if you ride the ray of creation back into the body mind, uh, the, the mind is geared to argue about what it now knows because it, it isn't computed. It, the, the, the body mind computer isn't big enough to compute the truth. And so... Uh, Basically, the, the body-mind has to bow to the fact that there's truth bigger than it can cook up. So, mm -hmm. so you're saying that this little piece of uh, brain matter, it's about six inches long or so, can't compute the truth? <laughs> yeah, and it's not, it's not just the brain. It's a, the whole manifested mind. It, it's, mm -hmm. Manifestation is all dualistic. And so even though we can talk about oneness or we can talk about non-duality, we can't compute it in the mind. 
So is manifestation dualistic or is it the way that we perceive manifestation dualistic? All of the above, <laughs> which, which is all, all the same thing. So what manifestation is what we perceive. Ah. So manifestation, we, we create it by dividing it up into this and that. Well, yeah, it's, so it's projected through, through our body-mind. Hmm. Well, maybe we should ride the ray of creation back a little bit uh, <laughs> down into the body and, and you know, ask you, how did, how did you get started in all of this? How did you? Well, uh, yeah, so I, I think like most people, it's something that goes on all by itself, even before you become conscious of it. And, and that's, my, my feeling is that everybody is looking for X. And, and so we have, have different words to put on it, but you could say truth or reality or identity or security or love or, you know, uh, but more so than, than we found. So I went through a period of, I don't know, half a dozen or a dozen years after I graduated from college. And uh, I, at that point, I had everything that should have made me happy, and yet I knew something was missing. But I, I'd scan the horizon figuring, oh, if I get another, a new car, you know, if I get a better job. I had a wife and kids I was delighted with, so I wasn't interested in trading them. <laughs> but, but I just, another degree, you know, I, I just had, had, had accomplished enough that anything I could conceive of, I knew more of it wasn't going to do the trick. But I didn't know what I was looking for. So if anybody asked me, and I think you find this a lot with other seekers, that if, if a seeker is asked what they really want, they can't, they can't really put their thumb on it, you know? Yeah. So uh, I, I went through what I referred to, what, what I thought of as identity crises about maybe once or twice a year for quite a few years. Hmm. And in retrospect, that's exactly what it was, but I, <laughs> I didn't know at the time why, why I even found that label for it. But so in 1978, when I was 33 years old, uh, one rainy afternoon, Sunday afternoon, my wife and I had the kids to the library to get them out of the house, you know. And uh, my wife came up to me and said, oh, I saw a poster. I think you'd be interested, something you'd be interested in. And it was a Zen group that was meeting at Ohio State University. We lived in Columbus, Ohio. And uh, I'd been reading Alan Watts. And so I was fascinated about Zen. And what I thought Zen was, was black robes uh, sitting in a lotus position, staring at candles. <laughs> but anyway, the whole idea of a group meeting for Zen just uh, appealed to me for curiosity or whatever. It, but it took me a whole year before I actually got to one of their meetings. I'd, I'd go to the university and it would be so I had done some graduate work there, but I, I wasn't in touch with the university schedule anymore. They're on a quarter system. I guess they still are. And so I'd go to try to find this meeting that uh, was in the student union there. And it would be during uh, the breaks between the quarters. Or, <laughs> <Not darn. laughs> yet, then then I'd, I'd call uh, the, the uh, professor who was... Uh, whatever, they, they had to have, the group had to have a professor as a, a mentor or something like that. 
and I'd call, I found his name and I'd call him and ask him about the meetings. He said, I, I actually don't know anything about him. You'll have to go to the meeting to find out. And so I'd forget about this for a few months and then I'd try again and forget about it and try again. And when I finally got there, I came into a meeting room where there were maybe 10 or 12 people sitting in a circle of chairs talking, 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 talking. And I thought, oh, well, <laughs> these people don't have a clue what Zen is all about. <laughs> That's not Zen. <laughs> but then it also then dawned on me, wait a second, these people are talking about stuff I'm interested in. I've never heard anybody talking about this stuff before. <laughs> so I got hooked and uh, started going to the meetings. And, and uh, a lot of the, the people in the meetings were kids who were either students or graduate students. And a bunch of them, maybe five or six of them, had rented a house near the campus that they used as an ashram. And I'd go over there two or three nights a week and somebody would stick around and talk to me to two or three in the morning. You know, they had, <laughs> whole, had a lot of patience. <laughs> and after a few months of going to these weekly meetings, uh, one of the meetings, uh, a fellow showed up that I assumed from what description I've heard, I'd heard of him or maybe even a photo I'd seen that it was Richard Rose, who had been the, the fellow who'd given a talk there at the university a year, couple of that, years before that. And uh, a group had started based on uh, students who liked what he had to say. And so uh, he showed up at the meeting. And, and uh, when I walked in and I saw him there, I went over and introduced myself. And I said, uh, well, I bet you're Mr. Rose. And uh, he said, yeah. And I said, well, my name's Art Tickner. And uh, I, I'm, so I had already read his book, The Albigen Papers. It was the only one that was published at the time. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, my, my impressions were two things. One is the guy had the best sense of humor of anybody I'd ever come across. And, and I'd read a thousand books, you know, and uh, he had the best sense of humor of anybody I'd ever come across. On the other hand, he thought he knew everything. And I knew for sure that you couldn't know anything for sure. <laughs> <laughs> so I didn't, I didn't see the contradiction in that belief, you know, <laughs> but Anyway, so I said, oh, and I know I, this, I'm doing this for a selfish reason. And I've heard about you going around the country, giving talks, not charging money, letting people stay on your farm and only asking them to share the cost of the electric bill they're running up. And I said, so why do you do it? And his eyes just sparkled a little more than, than I, I found after knowing him for years, they typically did. <laughs> well, first of all, what you're doing isn't selfish. And secondly, the reason I do this is because it's an obsession. I can't help myself. <laughs> so when he said that, it knocked the, the chip off my shoulder. I figured, this guy's okay. You know? mm. And then as he talked, so this was a confrontation-type meeting where ordinarily there'd be one of the students would, be, would monitor the meeting and have a question and go around to all of us and ask us our response to the question. But everybody was a little too uh, shy and embarrassed to talk in front of Rose. <laughs> so the poor guy had to end up doing the talking for a couple hours. And <laughs> after he talked for a while, something he said just rang a, a, like a big brass gong inside myself. I didn't even know it was there. Uh, and the words that came into my head were, this man is telling the truth. I've never heard it before, but something in me recognizes it. Hmm. So that's that's the the long story about how I got into this as a conscious seeker. Yeah. So, do you think you could tell us a little bit about Richard Rose? 
and his like, system and who he was yeah <laughs> yeah yeah everything i say is basically a, a plagiarism of his system <laughs> so <laughs> but uh my gosh it's hard to tell where to start so uh no cookbook procedure and so everybody when they're when they're getting started on a uh, conscious path to find the truth about themselves uh, we're all looking for some some practice that we can do you know and so um it, it, it probably in, in my view anyway it doesn't hurt to start with a practice but it's not going to take us there so something like mindfulness meditation uh, can be very useful to get a little detachment so that we can actually watch thoughts as opposed to being caught up in them all the time but uh once once that happens so all these shifts in what you could say is our view or our intuition, they seem to happen mainly by accident there. It's hard to program these things. And so Rose, Rose basically the bottom line, he, now he had lots of suggestions for what people could do to uh, put more of the CPU cycles toward the, the big problem of existence um, and, and to increase their clarity. But it basically in the end, it all came down to you have to, your intuition has to guide you. Right. So I was somebody who never thought of myself as at all intuitive and, and still don't basically, but I could see in retrospect that there were certain things in my life that were, that I'd picked up definitely by intuition. Well, it, it seems like that gong ringing in, in you when Richard Rose <laughs> spoke was intuition right yeah i'd say so in fact i i, I blame him for waking up my intuition <laughs> <laughs> i mean well, praise him obviously right yeah yeah yeah, yeah so i i agree isaac i think that's what happened yeah well he also seemed to have more of like a I, and i heard bob sergal talk about it or use these words uh meta system yeah yeah where it's like you work with um, you know, the threefold path yes. and, you, and all these suggestions of meditation, retreats, group work, and so on. Exactly. Yeah. But do you, so I know for, for him, I mean, he had this experience happen when he was around 30 after, you know, years of seeking. Yeah. Um, but he didn't really have like a one-on-one -on -one teacher. Right. And he didn't really have a system right. that took him yeah. back. Yeah. But, I mean, f and from your perspective, like, I mean, you had him as a teacher and others too. For 25 but... years. <laughs> That's a long time. <laughs> I, I was a slow, slow learner. Well, me too. <laughs> but um, do, do, you th do you think that all systems are necessarily bad or is it just that it, it worked out that he didn't use one? you know, as like, a, as far as cookbook recipe, or do you think it, that there really is no cookbook recipe? Well, I, I think the, the main consideration is that any belief we have is liable to uh, be in the way of the mind opening to the truth. And so if we're following a system that's based on beliefs, isn't it? Yeah. So it's not that beliefs in, in themselves are bad, it's just that beliefs are, to me, they're, they're the root uh, hanging over the edge of the cliff that you can grab onto once you tumble off the edge. Right. But, but for instance, 
um, you have to have a sort of a belief to meditate, like that you have the belief that meditation will uh, help you, you know, in your, in your path or you have, or even the belief that self-realization or enlightenment is something that can happen, you know? Yeah. And to me, I distinguish between belief and faith. So uh, if somebody, and to me, uh, faith is an intuitive shift. So if if I, if I believe that uh, it's possible to find capital T truth, then I think I've got a problem. If I have faith that it may be possible, and if it is possible, there's nothing that is a higher ideal for me to strive toward, then I think that's productive. I see. I'm curious to hear more about Richard Rose as a person, and you mentioned his farm. What what was the farm like? Well, the farm was, so during the Depression, his family lived in town about, I don't know, 20 minutes from where the farm is. And uh, they sold property in town and bought the farm properties because they figured, well, they could at least raise some vegetables, maybe some uh, livestock also, you know, so they'd have something to eat. Hmm. And so uh, Rose had three brothers and after his father died before his mother, after his mother died, the farm was left to the four brothers and Rose bought out the interests of the other three brothers. And he used it. So he would, uh, he and his family would live there in the summertime when the kids weren't in school. And then he would also take kids from town uh, out to, the farm just to uh, the one, give them a chance to get out of town, that kind of thing. Mm. So that's basically how it was used. And by the time I knew him, uh, again, he was still uh, only living there in the summertime with his family. Yeah, but uh, there were maybe half a dozen college students who in the 1970s had met Rose after they graduated from college, they moved down to the farm and actually lived on the farm, uh, built themselves cabins to live in mm-hmm. and uh, worked businesses that they started, you know, that they could work from the farm and, and uh, were sort of seasonal because they, they all typically, after uh, New Year's get together every year, they would take the month of January off and spend it in solitary retreat in their cabins. Ah. Rose, Rose was an enigma in many ways. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. So uh, his, his, he worked differently with men than women also. He, he figured men needed to become fighters mm-hmm. for the truth. And he didn't like, he didn't personally want to uh, want, want them to be leaning on him too much, you know? So uh, he would, he would work more with men in groups and he'd do a lot of talking, and his teaching was mainly psychological. He'd tell us about the psychologies of, uh, it could be the newscasters on the, t- the nighttime uh, news program, you know, or mm-hmm. a lot of it, it was about the weirdest people in the world you've ever heard about that he had bumped into along, along during his life, you know. Yeah. So that, that's the kind of teaching it was. It was very seldom what I would think of as confrontational uh you know where he'd say to somebody oh you're being a jerk or something like that you know Mm -hmm. it was basically talking in an impersonal way about personal psychology he was trying to 
help people see through their own delusions. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense and brings to my mind a question I had about psychology and the role of psychology, because it seems like it's an important part of the path, but also can become a distraction. Uh, yeah, I think eventually the, the, the inquiry has to move from the personal to the impersonal. Mm. Um, the, the, the thing about psychology is most of the accidents in terms of getting a better view seem to occur by watching the mind. Right. So life experience, like Rose used to say, life is the, the, the real teacher. So experience, what experience does in a teaching point is it shows a contradiction to a belief we have. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so we, we can get that when, when somebody punches us in the nose, right? <laughs> or we can also get that by watching the mind and seeing what's going on. And, and it starts becoming clearer and clearer. Wait a second. Uh, decisions are getting made and, and I don't have fingers or toes in there doing it, you know? So, so, in uh, in so some of the, some of the intuitive shifts come more from watching the actual mind movement, watching what's going on in the mind, than from the neighbors knocking on the door. Mm -hmm. So, with watching the mind, is that something that you do through meditation and isolation retreats? Well, so day -to -day? Uh, I, I it, at the first public talk that I heard Rose give, I heard him suggest that everybody who wanted to get more clarity of mind would meditate for an hour a day. Mm. And so I started that practice and I found very quickly, I found the only time I could do that was first thing in the morning. Otherwise though, you know, you get home and the kids had something going or you and your <laughs> wife had something going or people were visiting. And so, and I was not a morning person. I mean, I used to hit the alarm button five times or 10 times. In the morning <laughs> to get up. I hated getting up. Hate to go to bed, and but I, I, you know, so I'd get up an hour early every morning so I could meditate before I went to work, and uh, basically the meditation technique that Rose recommended was not to try to think along any particular line, but to remind yourself of what you're looking for, and then watch watch the thought stream that's going through the mind. If it seems relevant to what you're looking for, then let it go. If it doesn't, turn your head away from it. Right. Which is it's a technique that uh, it, it it might not sound meaningful to a lot of people because it's not really it's not like substituting a mantra you know or uh, oh no I'm gonna I'm gonna think about you know X Y Z it's just there's a way to turn your inner head and wait to see what comes next. Yeah, it's it's a it's a very different kind of meditation than. Definitely that I've come across. I mean, I've, I've tried a lot of kinds of meditation and yeah, like focusing on the breath or uh -huh. focusing on a thought theme um, are I, I think all valid ways of meditating, but this sure. yeah. gives a lot more room for um, like subconscious material to come up mm -hmm. like things that you're not expecting to come yeah. up, which I think is very valuable. Mm-hmm. So I guess I would really like to give our listeners kind of a, a more of a full picture of like who Rose was like, 
I've never, I never met him. Um, he was before my time, but from talking yeah. to folks and from look, watching a video of him, like he's was very charismatic and I can see why, um, folks would want to lean on him and he had to like, you know, tell, tell people to, to yeah. find their own way. Yeah. So what was it like being around him? Uh, it was always, <laughs> let me think of the right word. Consternational. It was always, it, 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 there was a lot of, a lot of energy and a lot of, for me anyway, um, a lot of stress. <laughs> I don't think I ever relaxed around Rose. Huh. So what was it that caused the stress? Was it just like your expectations of being around somebody who you had so much respect for? Or was it like just like psychic power or what? Well, I, I'm sure there is a, a bunch of different factors, but I think a lot of it just had to do with I didn't want anybody to see me the way I saw myself. And I figured this guy, I mean, he's psychic. <laughs> so <laughs> I used to, especially when, so like during the tap meetings, when there'd be in the wing of the farmhouse, which maybe, maybe was 14 by 16 feet, you know, uh, in addition, there might be 50 people in there and all of a sudden, and Rose would be talking and then all of a sudden it would get quiet and nobody would break the quiet and, I'd be sitting in my chair. Oh, I'd like to just disappear into the floor. <laughs> I just didn't want people to see me. Mm. So I think that was, I think that was a lot of it. Do you think you could give us a couple examples of like his psychic powers or like what kind of things he would do or say to his students? Yeah. Uh, so I, I remember one time him saying he didn't, read people's minds, he thought that was too intrusive, but he would pick up their mood, the, like the mental mood or their state of mind. So from the time he was a little kid, he would like, he, his mother was a staunch Catholic and she, when he, he was a little kid before school age, she'd take him to mass every morning with her. And uh, he used to tell a story about one time when he saw the priest coming down the aisle, he said to his mother, oh, so what he saw was, you know, like a corpse, <laughs> like, like, like a, what do you call it? A skeleton, you know, just a skeleton. And, and he said, oh, he's going to die. And his mother said, shh, you don't talk about things like that. Mm. <laughs> he said uh, when he walked around, walking around town as a little kid, if he smelled roses somewhere, he knew somebody in the house was going to die. And, wow. And uh, he was so sensitive to losing energy that there were certain people when he'd see him, if he was out, uh, you know, walking along the sidewalk somewhere and saw him coming toward him, he crossed the street. Oh. Wow. Yeah. So that also, that little story seems to suggest that it kind of ran in his family, which is often the case for a lot of like Appalachian uh, Irish folks. Yeah. Yeah. The, they call it fade, don't they? Yeah. And or the second sight and other, other yeah. uh, kinds of mm -hmm. ways of saying it. Yeah. But, so that's something different than, enlightenment you know it's a it's like there are a lot of people who have psychic powers that don't have the self-realization yeah yeah so was yeah, he, he you know in fact so for for years after his realization he wanted to find people to work with and the only people he found to work with were people who are into phenomena you know like table tilting and things like that right like spiritualism so, yeah he thought that was you know for people doing that fine that's fine you know keep doing it but uh eventually you want to graduate from that. Right. Yeah. So 
in your path, you did so you practice meditation. Yeah. Uh, you did group work. You you hung out with Rose and and the other Tat folks a lot. Practice um, celibacy. Celibacy, right? So that's another <laughs> thing that Richard yeah. Rose talked about that you don't really see a lot of people talking about, and it's really kind of still. I mean, even now, it's really controversial. <laughs> Definitely, yeah. Well, it goes against the grain. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and so uh, fortunately or unfortunately, I guess, uh, the spiritual path is really one that uh, the, the ego, you know, our, our, what we're identified with, uh, it gets challenged. And so sexuality is obviously one of, the, one of the main things that most of us have some strong identification with. And it's like, to me, it's like any kind of fasting if it's, in, if, if, if it's uh, pushed on us, it's no good. But if it's intentional, it can show us all amazing stuff about uh, our beliefs. So like the first time I uh, did a food fast, I, I uh, fasted for a week, water only. And I, was never, I never felt hunger the whole time. What I always thought of was hunger was entertain me time. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, it was it was incredible. It was a, what, what a relief to find that out, you know. Mm. <laughs> and so, uh, sex fasting is the same thing. It's gonna it's liable to be traumatic, you know. Yeah. It's it's gonna it's gonna show us uh, amazing stuff about our mind operation, our mind's operation. Right. I mean, it, I mean, that's been my experience for when I've I've done periods of celibacy. Is like, mm -hmm. sex is just such a powerful drive it's like one of the most powerful drive especially for for men um and taking some time off <laughs> from that really i mean first it, you you get a lot of discipline but you also see how your mind works and how your mind tries to trick you definitely yeah rose uh suggested doing it for basically your whole seeking period <laughs> if you were young yeah um, when, when I met him, he, he thought it was by the, by the time you were 30, it was you, you, sort of a lost cause. <laughs> so I was already over 30. And so eventually he changed it to 40. And uh, he, he, he recommended that you be very careful about celibacy after 40 because the, the uh, physical body may not adjust to it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, it also seems like it can be kind of dangerous to, I mean, food fasting can be dangerous too, or isolation or sure. dangerous yeah. for that matter. <laughs> yeah. Breathing, breathing can be dangerous. Right. Driving. <laughs> <laughs> but so what was your experience like with celibacy? Did, did well, so he, there seems like a multiple reasons that someone would do this on the, on the path um, yeah. from the discipline, from seeing the mind, work um and but also to uh energy transmutation which is mm -hmm. something that richard rose talked a lot about right. did did you find that that was um an important part for you well in in the first solitary retreat i did which was you know some a few months i think it was in the fall i met rose in the spring and it was that fall i spent a week on the farm in a trailer that was down by the well or the, the spring that ran in, in from the side of the hill. And uh, I had the first vision I ever had in my life. And it, it was basically, it wasn't like a movie. It was just 
out of, out of nowhere, it was like a light bulb went on in my head. I thought that only happened in the comic book strips, you know, and, and I got a new view and the words that formed to describe the view were the only chance I have for mental clarity is an extended period of celibacy. And so I couldn't wait to get home at the end of that week and share the good news with my wife. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Was she thrilled? <laughs> oh, yeah, she was really thrilled. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I, I was, I mean, I've, I've gotten a little more mature, but I was naive, so naive at the time. So I, I didn't, it didn't dawn on me she would take it as a personal thing, you know? Huh. Yeah. And so uh, I, I was uh, celibate for a year. We still slept in the same bed, but we didn't have any sex. And at the end of the year, one day at work, I got a phone call from the receptionist saying, there's somebody here to see you. And so I went down to the, the reception area and it was a sheriff's deputy with a summons to the divorce court. Oh, wow. That's, that's kind of intense. Well, I, I can't blame her for that, but I was just so stupid. So like when she'd say, do you love me? And, and I, my answer would be something like, I don't know if I'm capable of love. <laughs> I mean, geez, what more could you ask for, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> and, and of course I loved her and I, I adored her and the kids, you know. <laughs> right. But you're you know? going through your own... Uh own process there <laughs> yeah big time <laughs> yeah so you've got selves you've got meditation there's also this uh confrontation is that something that you practiced a lot with other folks in tat well um we used to do that in the tat meetings after rose so rose for about the last five years of his life had gone into uh alzheimer's and so he wasn't functioning anymore. And uh, the TAP meetings, the few people who uh, kept coming to the TAP meetings when he was no longer functioning, we would do confrontation with each other. So and what then, exactly does that mean, confrontation? Well, well so what it, what it means if it's done well is it's a friendly questioning of why the other person thinks or acts the way they do with the idea of helping the other person in their own self-inquiry, you know, when they're looking into their own uh, mental workings. Hmm. And you mentioned the TAP meeting. What, what is the TAP meeting for our listeners? Well, so Rose had started having four gatherings a year at the farm where people would come from basically all over. And uh, they were weekends in April, June, September, I think, and November. And, and so TAP now 20 years or however long it's been later, it still continues that process of having the, tw the four annual meetings, get weekend gatherings. It's almost 50 years later. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I suppose. <laughs> well, now, now they're online for the, well, since the coronavirus. But so the confrontation, it seems like. I, well, I first learned from about conversation confrontation from a group with you actually, yeah. uh, you know, in yeah. Pittsburgh when mm -hmm. I was a young college student <laughs> and it, it's a really interesting, um, practice. It's kind of like a, like group therapy, but uh -huh. focused on self-inquiry, I guess. Right. But 
like the psychology aspect is, I, it seems to me to be a big, big part of it. Um, like working through all of these, these beliefs that you are identified with that you don't necessarily realize. Yeah. Uh, what's been your experience over the last however many decades of uh, <laughs> participating and being, and, and also um, leading these kind of groups like what are some of the main stumbling blocks that people uh, fall into and get revealed in these confrontation sessions? Well, uh, gosh. So uh, let, let me also mention that Rose, uh, he, he didn't really do confrontation. He recommended it as a way for seekers to work together with each other. Right. Yeah. And so his, his idea was that he used the term like building a house, that two people could build a house in fewer man hours than one person doing it by himself. Uh, he, he talked about that as the contractor's law, that there's, there's a, uh, the sum is bigger than the whole of the parts, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So he, he strongly encouraged uh, people to work, to, seekers to work together rather than trying to do it all on their own. And, uh, so in some ways, it's harder for a lot of guys to do that because if the guy's uh, mentality is like mine in any way, it was always I wanted to go into the cave and solve the problem myself. And right, but being being in the group kind of makes you vulnerable. It does. You have to open your – yeah, if you want to really participate, it does, doesn't it? You have to open yourself up to uh, hearing a question and then trying to give an honest answer to it. Yeah, so maybe that's one of the main stumbling blocks. <laughs> well, and so for uh, at one point after I had become a hundred percent convinced that it was hopeless for me, <laughs> so which was uh, again that delusion of knowing something for sure, you know. Uh, yeah. I I went to AA meetings every day for thirty days. I didn't decide to start going. I didn't decide to stop going. But it was the summertime and. I, I was, uh, in, you know, I'd been in d- depressed mood for half a dozen years, and it was seemingly worse in the summer than the winter, and I wasn't working, and so I had a lot of free time to do nothing, and uh, every afternoon, I'd find myself having two two drinks, two alcohol drinks, and one, one day, it dawned on me, you know, I, I'm not in charge of starting this or stopping. It could go downhill really fast. And so I think this was, again, like you could say, psychic helper intuition. Uh, the idea came into my mind. I'd, I'd read the big blue book or whatever they called it of AA and uh, years before that. And I'd always been curious about it. I wanted to work the 12 steps. And so I, I decided to look to see if there was any AA meeting in this little town where I lived. <laughs> it turned out within like a 40 minute radius, there were meetings every morning, noon and night. I, went, I didn't go to the same meeting a second wow. time in 30 days. <laughs> so, <laughs> wow. Yeah. Really uh, cruise. Yeah. Uh, so uh, what was I going to tell you about that in terms of confrontation? I don't know. Uh, I know it was a breath of fresh air that walking into a room of people who were just trying to be honest. Mm. It was, it was really amazing. Yeah. It's like the importance of working with a group. Yeah, them. definitely. Yeah. And our suffering kind of like breaks down those, the shields of, of yeah, yeah. wanting to not be, not wanting to be vulnerable. 
Yep. So your newest book, The Sense of Self, The Source of All Existential Suffering, um, I, I wanted to ask you what you think the source of all existential suffering is. Well, the, so we believe we're something that's separate, some, some little piss ant, you know, thing on this planet, especially you get up in an airplane, and you look down, you know, mm. you see, you get a perspective from 20,000 feet or whatever, uh, separate, vulnerable, Something that was born is going to die. I mean, what a, what a shitty situation to be in. <laughs> who who would have want this? <laughs> so existence, my God. But there's so much beauty and and love and uh, <laughs> stuff too. Can well, you have can you have uh, all that beauty without the suffering? <laughs> well, yeah, we don't. So in this dimension, we don't know anything except in terms of its opposite. So the more suffering, the more beauty, you know, not, not necessarily in terms of minutes, but in terms of, uh, depth. Yeah. Yeah. But the whole oh. thing is, so it, it, th this dimension is ruled by paradox and paradox means you can't ever know anything for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so the whole setup is one that's confrontational in a big way. And so what do we do? We try to grasp onto comforting beliefs. Mm -hmm. But right. but there, that's like hypnosis. I mean, the whole thing is hypnosis where the, our attention is hypnotically caught here, seemingly in, inside our oyster world. Yeah, so part of this process is disassociating in a way in a way like you're disidentifying with the body the thoughts the mind the emotions and f f because those aren't the essence of what you are right yeah and the problem there is that the mind is geared to switch from a belief to its opposite belief right and and yeah. that is just a trap in itself hmm. so the 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 opening comes when you, you realize I'm not, I'm, there's no, I'm no solid ground here. Mm -hmm. I used to believe I made decisions. Now I believe, or I have a lot of evidence that says I don't make decisions, but wait a second, maybe I do have some influence, you know? It's, mm -hmm. it's that, that uh, in-between state, which lets the mind open. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, <laughs> it is such a paradox too, when, you know, after many years of studying my mind, um, I, I see so many people, especially in like the non-dual uh, circuit mm -hmm. saying like, you know, I don't do anything. There is no doer. Right. But then I see all those, these folks in like um, the more like magic side where it's mm -hmm. all about will and yeah. uh, building your will. And I switch back and forth between those, but I, I can, I can see these decision making processes happening. I can see these decisions right. being made and I can see that I'm not what I am is not actually involved in that. But it also seems like there I do have some part and that the will is important and it is such a conundrum. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So there's no way to you, you can't you can't be 100 percent sure in either direction, can you? So you have to some somehow ride the fence. Yeah. And that. That seems to me like uh, an example of why tension is important. Yeah. Richard Rose talked a lot about tension yeah. and especially the building the capacity for tension. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so when you have when you have like this capacity of retention, you can ride those paradoxes and not get pulled under by them. But so what's your experience been with tension or what does tension mean to you? Well, we wouldn't do anything without tension. We'd, we'd be a blob that didn't move. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> we wouldn't survive very long. So ten- tensions, you know, the, the, the mind is really programmed to try to survive. Right. Right. And so that, and like, I get the feeling every cell in this body wants to survive. Mm-hmm. And so uh, tension is necessary for, for survival. Yeah, and then that life and death is a tension. <laughs> a big one. <laughs> yeah. Right, because like I you can see how you know all animals, all everything that exists, and it seems like everything is alive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, once wants to be alive, like otherwise oh. it wouldn't it wouldn't be alive. <laughs> or like with evolution, natural selection, there's you're selected uh to survive. Mm-hmm. But you can also see that everything is interconnected and related and is part of the one thing in a, in a way too. And that, that's a kind of a, a big tension also. <laughs> well, and there's tension between like the fluctuating beliefs too, that you have all the time. Isn't there? Yeah. 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 As soon as you believe something, you're like, okay, let's try this other end of the spectrum. Right. Well, even down at a level of fears and desires, there's, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, every day it's an ongoing argument with them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. To make a decision. It's. Yeah. Or do you mm-hmm. describe it as an emotional tug of war? Definitely. Yeah. It really fits my experience of it too. Mm-hmm. Well, usually most, most of them, you know, let's say we make hundred decisions a day, 95 of them, maybe we don't even pay much attention to, but right. the ones that seem to get our attention where, when, when the, the teams, uh, the, however, the fears and desires have lined up in this particular issue, they're, they're sort of equally pulling, nobody's winning. Then you realize that how, I don't know whether to turn right or to turn left, you know, I'm yeah. stuck here. Mm-hmm. So in your, going back to your uh, path, you know, you've, meditation was a part of it. Confrontation yep. was a part of it. Yep. Celibacy working with a teacher. Mm-hmm. Um, the other big part was isolation retreats. Yeah. That's where a lot of stuff has happened for you. Definitely. You- they, they were high points in my life. Yeah. One time, I, so they involved a lot of uncomfort, discomfort, because mm-hmm. I'd always do it in the winter months and I'd be in a cabin that didn't have any electricity or any plumbing or any, mm-hmm. much of any way to heat it, you know, and it had maybe a kerosene lamp. And so, the nighttime would be about 20 hours long. Yeah. <laughs> it, was, <laughs> it was usually a miserable time of year. And, and uh, one, one time, though, Bob Sergal finally convinced me to use his cabin for an isolation retreat. It was so comfortable that the whole isolation was a bomb. <laughs> <laughs> Too comfortable, not enough tension. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So how, how have the isolation retreats um, impacted you? Like, what have you benefited and learned from them well you know it's it's hard to tell because i uh after the first couple years when i just had a job that 
I had started not too long ago and only had two weeks vacation. I'd do a week in the spring, a week in the fall. But after that, uh, I, I would do a month long isolation retreat most years. And that involved a change in jobs many times because the company I was working for wasn't too delighted about my willingness to take off a month of time, usually when some project needed attention, you know? Uh-huh. So, so it's hard to say in a way what one, one month of solitary retreat did. I mean, there's so much going on. Yeah. In, in, in different retreats, I would see different things. So, um, one, one of the retreats I remember it was in a lot of these were on the Rose farm. I was living in Texas at the time I, for the months preceding that. So usually I thought of myself as a sort of uh, optimistic person, not hugely, but minorly optimistic. Mm-hmm. And for, for maybe four or five or six months before that November retreat, I felt like, mm, you know, things, I don't know, there don't seem to be many opportunities in life, that kind of stuff. And yeah. I got to the farm. It was cold. It had been raining. It was muddy. The trees had, were mostly deciduous trees without their leaves. And I always thought that was God's major design error. <laughs> deciduous trees are so ugly. <laughs> and so uh, I started... I started the retreat with three days of fasting. I'd found out over the years that three days would be enough to uh, trigger trigger a change in my state of mind. Mm-hmm. And uh, so when I got when I got there, the the ground was muddy, the trees were ugly, and there didn't seem to be many possibilities in life. And after the first three days, when I woke up in the morning, went out to pee, all of a sudden. The, the mud was beautiful. The deciduous trees were beautiful and anything was possible. Mm. <laughs> so, and when I talked to Rose about it afterwards, he said, oh, that's, that's the value of fasting. It shocks the, it's liable to shock the body into a new state of mind. Mm-hmm. And I could see my, my convictions were 180%, 180 degrees different from what they'd been the day before, you know? Huh. And, and basically all, all, um, knowing in, in this dimension it all requires contrast so we can't know anything without having some contrast you know that, yeah, that's why experience is needed to uh challenge our beliefs mm-hmm. yeah so do you think you could give us our listeners a little um definition of what an isolation retreat is and like maybe yeah <laughs> why someone would do that or yeah. Uh, yeah. the structure of it. Yeah. yeah, sure. Yeah. And so I, I followed Rose's advice of not trying to have any particular objective or structure other than the main one that was running, running our seeking, which was uh, reminding ourselves what we we're looking for and, and what we're looking for. We don't, we don't know what it looks like. It's just, you have to come up with it. like, so I could feel it. It was longing it was the longing that was, and for me, it seemed to be pretty close to the surface. It, I could always just check in, oh, yeah, it's still there. So that longing or yearning for, we don't know what, but I, I found words to try to describe it to myself. Uh, with, with Rose, the, I borrowed words from him, which were, I want to become the truth at any cost. So 
I, I, looking back at my life, I, I saw that in a relative standpoint, I liked truth. I liked the idea of truth. So whenever I'd tell a lie, if it was to a friend or a family member, I always wanted to correct it right away. Uh, I, I read mystery detective fiction for years from the time I was a little kid because there were answers. People found the answer to the mystery uh. problem. Uh, in, in high school, the only, the only subject, <laughs> I wasn't the world's best student. The only subject I opened my books on or did any homework on were the math because I wasn't good at it. When I got to college, I majored in math, <laughs> which is stupid. <laughs> but, and then uh, music. So when I was four years old, my parents had me taking music lessons. I don't, they didn't know what to do with me, I guess. And uh, the, the music that I liked was Mozart and Bach. And to me, Mozart particularly is so mathematical, you know, it's, mm -hmm. so that, that the idea of math and, and solving mysteries and truth were something that I had a proclivity toward. Right. Yeah. Answers. And, and uh, later I saw, I read some words in one of Ramana Maharshi's dialogues about obeying the Lord in thought, word, and deed. And I realized that described what I was looking for also, but when I scanned my mind, I figured I can't commit to that because it means I'd have to be conscious of what was going on in my mind 101% of the time. And I, I knew that wasn't likely to happen. So I think we find we, we, that what, you know, that the life force is animating these bodies. So when you talk about sentience, where, where the knowing is, the sentience, the seeing and, you know, all that. It's not in these bodies. It's not in the brain. <laughs> it's the sentience is in the life force. It's, it's guiding the acorn to know to put a root down if it's in the right position and the right uh, amount of moisture and temperature. I mean, my God, it's so intelligent. That's the acorn. It, it doesn't have even a neural system. It doesn't have any neurons. <laughs> and yet it, it can become an oak tree if conditions are right. And so the same thing with, with us, us uh, human beings, uh, the intelligence is, is the, the life force that's pulsing through the equipment here. And, and that life force has a song that it's singing. It's a message. It's saying, come home, come home. So are, are you and I and everyone, are we, is the, the life force our essential identity or is it something is our essential identity something more or less? Yeah, that, that's not our essential identity, but it's a big part of our identity. Hmm. You know, you know, Rose uh, talked about the trip he had to Egypt and uh, he was down in the Gaza Strip one day and some college kids came up to him and asked him something about truth. He thought he was amazed why, why these kids just out of nowhere would come up and ask him that. And he, and he, he said, well, look over the door of that uh, pyramid there. There's, there's, your, your, your ancestors knew about this. He, he, it was the Ankh, the sun with the rays coming out of the sun and the hand at the end of each ray. Yaten, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so that's basically, we're, we're that here. We're, we're the hand at the end of the, the life force ray that's coming down into this particular mechanism. So this leads me to a question that I always always pops up when in these kinds of discussions and it is what is it that identifies because 
it seems like we're identified all the time with the body and the mind. Um, and then from my perspective, you're identified with the sun, not yeah. the hand. Yeah. But what is it that identifies? Well, so that's, that's also the question of where the sentience is, right? Yeah. Yeah. And so the, the sentience is all back at the source or uh, close enough to the source. So it, it's in awareness. And, and what we are at the source is self-aware. So the, the umbilical cord that's connecting us back to the source is that ray of awareness. So that's God. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's as it's, it's close to God as we can talk about here. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so basically, so a lot of people, I think, get the intuition, I'm, I, I'm awareness. Well, it's not, so awareness is self-aware, but what we are is the source of awareness. Hmm. So would you uh, like to tell our listeners maybe about your last isolation retreat? Oh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that must have been about my... 25th or 55th isolation retreat <laughs> and it was I uh so the strange thing was that I had made a trip over to England to meet Douglas Harding uh half a year before then uh, uh our, our friend mutual friend Sean Nevins had advised me years ago to go to a Harding workshop and Harding used to come over to the U.S. every year he put on a workshop on the eastern part of the United States one year and the western part the next year and back and forth. And so he had he was scheduled to come over to Princeton to give a workshop that spring. And I'd signed up for it. In, uh, no, it must have been fall. I'd signed up for it. And that summer in the uh, annual retreat that he had with his students, uh, at uh, some, some cathedral in England, I forget where it was. Salisbury, maybe. Uh, he had fallen down some steps and he was in his 90s at the time. And his doctor said, No more transatlantic uh, trips. It's too long to sit, you know, without getting any movement. And so he canceled that retreat. And so I, and I could have gone to a workshop over in Europe, but I didn't really want to go to one of his workshops. <laughs> so I, I emailed and invited myself to come over and meet him. And he, he very sweetly, so he was like Rose, and I think like a lot of um, a lot of the teachers that you'd want to run into, he was available. And uh, right, yeah. So anyway, I, I that was in October. I went over and uh, stayed there for close to a week, and then when a couple of the students in the Pittsburgh group found out about it, they wanted to go meet him. So I. I wrote back and said, can these two fellows come over? And I didn't hear back from them, which I always did. And so then I, a little later, I wrote and said, well, uh, can can I come over and bring these two? And oh, yeah, yeah, come on over. <laughs> we, we really hit it off well. And so I went over again in February, and I think it was on the way home, on the flight home, I, I had the feeling, it was like a feeling, a mood descended on me, that I want to become more, uh, earnest. I don't think that was the word, but that's, that gets close to it. I want to become more serious about this than I've ever been in my life before. 
And I remember I also had the very strong conviction that if anything was ever going to happen for me, I'd have to be on my own somewhere. It couldn't be around other people. So to me, in retrospect, I made the stupidest decision in my life, but something protected me. <laughs> so uh, I already had a solitary retreat scheduled for May, and I'd already reserved the cabin. It was in a, a place up along Lake Erie, uh, the woods that were part of the convent of uh, Franciscan, maybe, nuns. And uh, so uh, fortunately, when I got up to that week-long week retreat or 10-day or whatever it was, um, that, that mood was still with me. I wanted to be more serious than I ever had before. And it was an amazing retreat. Things, Something happened that had never happened before. The, the Harding, uh, a lot of Harding's teaching is about looking back at what you're looking out from. And uh, so I had done that for a long time. And, and when you look back at what you look up, what you're looking out from, it's just following that sense of self, you know, and you don't see anything. So it's like the, the sense of self, the self jumps around behind you before you can see anything, but instantaneously you get a view that's, there's nothing there. And so uh, during the, the retreat, about toward the end, getting toward the end of the retreat, just out of, out of the blue, the, the phrase uh, open sesame would hit my mind. Huh. And when it did, I would look back, I would find myself looking back at what I was looking out from, and I would see something. Mm. And, and uh, after a couple days, when, uh, oh, well, no, so that, that, hap that happened for maybe two days. And what then, did you see? Well, uh, I couldn't tell you at the, at the time. I just knew I knew I was seeing something, but I didn't yeah. know what it was. And so that that was uh, the retreat ended on a Sunday. I scheduled it because we had Monday confrontation group in Pittsburgh. And this was halfway between where I was doing the retreat in my house. I figured, oh, hell, I don't want to go back home and then all the way back up to Pittsburgh on Monday. <laughs> so practical scheduling. And so on Sunday evening, I so we were right across the road from Lake Erie and I wanted to go watch the sunset on the lake, but I decided to save that for the last night of the retreat. So on this Sunday night, uh, I walked over and, and stood along the lake and watched the sunset. And then I went back to this little cabin, a nice, nice cabin. And I was sitting in the chair there for maybe the second time in my life. I thought, hmm, I'm, I'm absolutely doing nothing. So I always had to have my mind had to be busy. And I had to have a backup plan for keeping busy if whatever I had in mind didn't work. And here I was just sitting in a chair, not doing anything. It was amazing. It was wonderful. And all of a sudden, that phrase, uh, open sesame, hit my mind again. I looked back at what I was looking out from. And now I was... I was seeing awareness and, and I could see, so and this seemed to have a duration this time. Usually when I look back, it was just instantaneous, but this, this had a duration to it. And the longer I looked at it, the, so I think my intuition was computing and stuff, but I wasn't watching intuition, the process at the time. But uh, after a while, it dawned on me, awareness has a characteristic, it has just one characteristic and that characteristic is that it's self-aware. And so after staring at this for some period of time, uh, all of a sudden I realized, well, wait a second, there's a lie here somewhere because awareness is self-aware and doesn't need my help in being aware. 
And yet I believe I'm something, a separate awareness that's aware of this. <laughs> so that and and so that that led very rapidly to a conclusion of which was true and which was false. And when that happened, the mind opened and I found myself back home. Mm. Wow. wow. Yeah. And oh, that was uh, so also when I was sitting in the chair there before that all occurred and it was really as I'm doing nothing. I, I remember thinking this has been another wonderful uh, retreat. I must not have been ready yet, you know, to mm -hmm. find what I'm looking for, but it's been a wonderful retreat. You know, I was very relaxed and uh, acceptant. Mm. And I think that acceptance has, and there were a lot of other things in, in my life that led up to acceptance. I think that whole issue is one that uh, is very important for a seeker. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's something you can't you can't force either. No, not no, not in any way. No. So that that home that you're describing was something that was always there all along. Yes. Yeah. And it's it's what we always have been, mm -hmm. and always will be. Mm -hmm. And it's so, so basically whatever we're looking for, we're looking for the perfect version of it, right? Perfect love or perfect security or perfect truth or whatever. And, and that's, that's what we are. We're, we're, we're eternal perfection. Hmm. So, but can you just believe that though? <laughs> <laughs> well, you can try. <laughs> it doesn't, doesn't solve the problem though, does it? So do you think that calling ourselves seekers is keeping us in a loop of always seeking rather than maybe if we called ourselves found or the truth or something like that? Well, if it does it for you. Yeah. So my, in my view, I can't know anything for sure about what another person knows about their state of being. So if somebody says, I've found what satisfies me, I have no argument with that. I think everybody has to be their own authority. You have to become your own authority to even have a chance of finding what you're really looking for. What exactly does that mean, becoming your own authority? <laughs> yeah. So to me, it meant I have to be able to see the difference between what I can see for myself. So we're talking about intuition here, right? What I can see for myself versus what I've just adopted from agreeing with other people. Gotcha. Yeah, so it's not it's not absolute, but it's it's the best we got to work with. Mm -hmm. Wow. So it looks like we've already gone through an hour, and we've this got went fast, didn't it? Yeah, I, did. thought, I thought it was going to take all afternoon. For, for the <laughs> well, we've got most of the questions that we wanted to ask. Um, oh, good. Save save the other ones for if I'm still alive in three years. I'm planning to have an 80th birthday party. Oh, oh great. cool. We'll be there. <laughs> so do you think you could tell our listeners a little bit about the books that you've written and your website and TAT and how to get in touch with you if they, if, if you sure. are available? Yeah. 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 So probably the best way to get in touch, don't call because I don't, I don't uh, answer the phone unless I know who it is. You can leave a message, but uh, basically I'm not much for zooming or phoning or anything, uh, but I'm happy to work through email as a starting point. And probably the easiest way to get my email address is to look on my website, which is selfdiscoveryportal, all three words run together.com. Yeah. 
and we'll put all that in the uh, show notes too. Okay. Okay. And then uh, definitely check out TAT. So I've, I've been a, a supporter and actor in uh, the TAT Foundation forever, right, Isaac? I don't know, 50 years or whatever. <laughs> as long as I've been alive, at least. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, TAT, TAT's a wonderful place to find people with compatible interests and uh, willing to work together. Yeah. Well, great. Well, thank you so much, Art, for being on the show. Oh, glad to do it. Yeah, thanks, Art. It was really nice talking with you. Same here, I see. Yeah, thank you for um, being a great influence on Isaac over the years. <laughs> well, an influence. We'll, we'll find out how great it was. <laughs> 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 All right. Okay. Well, we'll talk to you later. Bye. Okay. Bye. Bye.